Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many media publications. In my opinion, he's one of the most influential people to follow and futurist on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, uh, Ray Wang, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host, Vala Afshar, and more importantly, the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce and author himself, one of the top followers, uh, top, top people to follow in social media for CEOs, CMOs, and CIOs, and also a freaking contributor to Bloomberg <laughs> Business Network in Canada. So more importantly, uh, one of my good friends here. So, But hey, it's not about us. It's always about our awesome guests. This week, we've got some awesome guests on a lineup. Who do we have first, Vala? What an honor for us to have Milan Rao, who's currently the president at Wipro. Milan heads Wipro's core transformation office, or MIT, Marketing, Innovation, and Technology, that's driving Wipro's business transformation and has the charter of developing transformational technology solutions. Milan also oversees the CTO office, which is Wipro's innovation and R&D hub, and defines the company's technology, vision, and strategy. On top of that, he also heads up two of Wipro's businesses globally, manufacturing and communications, driving digital transformation across the value chain for all its customers in process, industrial manufacturing businesses, automotive, aerospace, defense, and telecom sectors. He's part of Wipro's executive uh, council, which is the apex decision-making council of Wipro's group companies. Previously, he was the president and CEO of GE's Healthcare for India and South Asia, where he managed a multi-billion dollar business. He's a great follow on Twitter at Milan Rao, M-I-L-A-N-R-A-O underscore. Welcome, Milan, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for the introduction, and I think there's way more than I think that I do. <laughs> but it's really nice to be here talking to well, you. Milan, I have to shorten it because we only have a 20-minute segment. You do a lot, and Ray and I know that, and hopefully our audience will get a, a glimpse into the awesome amount of responsibilities that you have. Yeah, and speaking about that, I mean, you've got a really large workforce. Uh, tell us a little bit how big they are, what they've been doing, right? In this post-pandemic environment, I mean, you've had to do things for them and your clients at the same time. And maybe that's a starting point to talk about where we are today. Oh, absolutely. So we have uh, over 185,000 people in Wipro, and we manage, of course, the top uh, 1,000, 1,100 clients all across the world. And uh, the pandemic situation, obviously, very, very difficult one. So the first priority, of course, for us was uh, employee safety and the safety of our customers. Um, so everything that we had to do was to make sure that uh, employees were safe, sound, uh, were able to get to their places that they had to get to, and making sure that um, wherever they were, whether they were at home or some uh, skeletal staff which was working, you know, had to make sure that food, supplies, uh, all the medical equipment, et cetera, was available for them. And then, of course, on to our clients. You know, we have uh, more than 165,000 billable people and how we had to ensure that all of them were enabled from work from home over a very short period of a couple of weeks was a mammoth charter. Uh, we actually did that. So, you know, just in some numbers, uh, shipped more than 40,000 desktops, procured an incredible number of laptops, got 
close to 30,000 uh, Wi-Fi dongles uh, in order to enable them to get connected. Um, huge exercise, but I think uh, very important for business continuity. Uh, over 93% of our workforce was actually enabled for business continuity. And I think we feel very proud about the fact that uh, we were able to do that both for our customers and for our clients. And it was just from a as an example, you know, one of the airports uh, that we work very closely with, they knew that they had to shut down within 48 hours. And we had to make sure that, you know, whatever passengers that they were getting in, whatever cargo shipment that was coming in, we had to ensure that all those employees were working from home and yet enabling the entire thing. And the difficult part in this is not just the the physical element of doing this, but it's also organizational change management, right? They have never done this before. So how do you enable that to happen, I think was as much of a challenge for us as to make sure that we do it within ourselves. And I think that that, that's one of the big learnings uh, in terms of how resilience can be built into an organization and with our customers. Staggering numbers. I mean, you're moving battleships at scale here. I mean, this is crazy. You are. It's, it, it, but, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me. First of all, you're an amazing Salesforce partner. You know, you're serving clients over six continents, growing your business at unbelievable rates. I visited your headquarters and it was the first time I actually got a ride in an autonomous vehicle was on your campus. Which, all right. but the amount of innovation that's happening at Wipro is it's just amazing. But what I was more impressed, not, not the innovation spirit and the culture of creating amazing technology and solutions, is the core values, your core values, your four core values, be passionate about client success, be global and responsible, treat every person with respect and underlying integrity in everything you do. And I can see these four core values live. These aren't posters and you know, you know, inspirational you know, email signatures. I saw it in action. And what I also see in terms of your core values in action is the, the, the soul and the spirit of Wipro, you, you're repurposing one of your technology campuses in Poon to a 450-bed hospital to ensure society can deal with this, you know, seismic event that, that we've experienced, uh, you know, first time in our lifetime. So it's not just about technology, but my question is about technology. I just wanted people to understand that your company's soul is what makes you successful above innovation and technology. And we're seeing a new business model to support contactless commerce as a result of the mm-hmm. pandemic. We see acceleration of digital transformation and automation, implementation of cloud-first mentality, uh, use cases with AI is growing significantly, artificial intelligence. What does all this mean for your clients on these six continents? And how can you, as a business, prepare yourself post-pandemic in this new norm that we all have to, you know, compete and, 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 and survive in? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, I would divide it into three parts. You know, the first was just the react and respond, mm-hmm. uh, which was very initial, employee safety, business continuity, and so on. The second part is what we're going through right now, which is, you know, how do you make sure that everything works really well and that business as usual can start coming back to all of these companies. And then there's a third very important element that we have to deal with for ourselves and for our customers is that as business changes in a post-pandemic world, how do you come out stronger uh, for that, for, for enabling of that business? And I think each of these three has a very different notion from a, a technology perspective. 
Um, so I, I talked a little bit about the first part, but I talked a little bit about the second part, which is you know, what are we doing now? Hmm. I think you know, as you start thinking about customers, you, you have to really think about what is the normal of today. What are your customers thinking, and what are your customers feeling right now? I think the the, the feeling part, and you, know, you talked a little bit about the social consciousness. I think it starts from what are our customers feeling and what are our customers' customers feeling? People are scared today. People do not want to go out to a restaurant right now, you know, even though it's open at some places. So what do you do? You know, you start thinking about uh, making sure this contactless takeout, which is available in restaurants, making sure that uh, retail organizations, which have never really thought about technology in that way, prepare themselves with curbside pickup so that you know they're able to run their chains and you know what technology changes are required and process changes are required to enable that curbside pickup is something that we've done with a lot of uh, different organizations the second part of that is then you know what makes the what is it that the customer is going to do next right mm -hmm. there's so much of change which is going to happen which is on e-commerce and I'm, I'm just wondering if it's going to remain e-commerce or is that going to become commerce Right. So how do you make sure that uh, the way that the new set of customers that is coming to e-commerce is able to handle that? How are our platforms, how is AI ML able to enable these new customers to decide what is it that they want to buy? How is it that they want to buy? And then enable them to go through that process in a not so difficult manner. Imagine people who who've always been wanting to go and buy their own groceries, right, at the shop, because, you know, there's a social element to it. You go out there and you do that. Now, how do they decide, uh, how do I do this with, with my customer base? So I, I think there are fundamental thought processes about the customer that you have to do. You have to reimagine their user journeys, how that user journey can be digitally enabled and therefore, all the technologies really, for me, are enabled. Yeah. Right? Whether no, it's uh, AI, whether it's 5G, whether it's you know robotics, everything's about enabled. Yeah, no, Milan, and you're right. I mean, when you think about what's going on, we are seeing right that pulling through of digital automation, cloud AI. Those are massive. You know, if you weren't in a digital channel, people are, you know, are scrambling to get in there. And, and now that they're in a digital channel, they're trying to figure, hey, can I automate that? And, and now that I'm in an automation point, can I get that into a subscription business model? All these things are converging, you know. And when we look at this post-pandemic future, I mean, what do you think is going to stay the same? What is going to change? Because it's definitely, it's definitely making a huge impact, not only our business psyche, but also in our social psyche. Well, you know, what's going to change is, is is fairly clear, isn't it? I mean, everything is going to go virtual. Uh, so so I think that's something that we have to deal with. And it's not going to come back to the same level as before. I mean, this definitely, the virtual aspect of it is is going to increase. I think uh, uh, there is, there's going to be an increase in digital primacy. And I call it digital primacy because people need to look at everything from a digital perspective. I, I was mentioning it in another forum earlier today that I believe that the digital transformation glass ceiling has been broken by the pandemic, right? Yes, so right. everything that is, it's kaboom. It's, you know, you no longer 
all the people who are naysayers of digital transformation <laughs> or who were skeptics, they don't do that. They don't do that anymore. You know, <laughs> we often say in a sales cycle, you got to do POCs. Well, you know what? In digital transformation, you're living that POC right now, right? So the primacy around digital is going to be uh, key. But what customers need to look at is, uh, are what are the mega trends which are going to impact them, you know, going forward. So, so what's going to happen from a social distancing perspective? What's going to happen from a buying behavior perspective? What's going to happen from uh, information analytics perspective? You know, how, how are people going to fundamentally consume information and then take decisions? So that process is going to change. And I think uh, it's something that we all need to get used to. Um, individual technologies, I think, you know, we can talk a lot about, but I think uh, fundamentally digital primacy and how people are going to rethink the process of buying and interaction is going to change. What's going That's to remain is an, is an interesting one, uh, Ray, because I think what's going to remain are the basics. Right? We talked a little bit about trust. I think mm -hmm. today, the requirement of trusting your advisor or your partner is at an all-time high. Yeah. What's not going to change is social interaction, empathy for your customers. And at the end of the day, we are all in the business of people. What's not going to change are people are still going to be the same. They're going to come back. And so your orientation around people and how you work with people, whether it's your employees or your clients, I think that is going to remain. And that's the most important thing that companies like ourselves, uh, Salesforce, Wipro, Constellation, we all have to think about. Absolutely. No, it's a it's great point. And we're getting some comments as well. I mean, Ward Smith, consumption needs to be automated. Definitely a great point here. We're also seeing transformation naysayers who haven't converted in the last three months will not even be around. Back to your digital privacy point, you can even ask for better comments like this. So, no, yeah. absolutely. And let's take it back to people because the first time I met your current chairman, he was not the chairman of Wipro, but I right. met Rashad Primji when I was honored to deliver a keynote at NASCOM, one of the most influential uh, consortium of IT and business leaders in Mumbai. And what a humble guy. What a, what a, what a big brain. But it wasn't the smart uh, conversations we had, but the accessibility, the humility, the genuine interest that I felt when I had the privilege of having dinner and having casual conversation with Rashad. And I saw that he was you know, proactively trying to engage with as many people at the conference as possible. And today he's working on some great projects during this pandemic. Can you share some of the initiatives that he's leading and the impact that he's having? And of course, 185,000 Wipro community behind him in terms of impact on communities. Sure, you know, we're very, very fortunate to be, you know, 67% owned by the Azim Premji Foundation. And together with the foundation and the Wipro group, That's right. That's uh, we've pledged over $150 million uh, to fight the pandemic. And I think I think the, the major shift, and as you know, the Azim Premji Foundation is a lot about education, but I think the crisis has uh, made the foundation also rethink and made us all rethink about, you know, the current issue is one of making sure that people are safe. So there's a health issue. And the second part is that there's a humanitarian issue. You know, we don't see it uh, sitting in our offices and homes but there are millions of people who are stranded from their homes with no livelihood. 
So we repurposed our, you know, Wipro kitchens uh, in different cities, and we prepared over the last couple of months more than 2.6 million meals that we have given to the needy. Oh, so, so you you shut down the campus, but kept the canteens open. And yeah, the cafeterias open to feed people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. And then and and then along with the foundation, you know, uh, the Azim Premji Foundation has actually created ration and food kits for more than 6.8 million people. Wow. Uh, and and that's something that you know you feel very very proud to be associated with uh, all the all the people the partners and everyone coming together uh, in society to deal with society and you mentioned very briefly you know one of our campuses in Pune you know we've converted it into a, into a 450 bed COVID hospital and that's going to be working for the next six to twelve months so I think you know the social element of it. Uh, is is as important. And when I really think about technology, when I think of resilience, it's about the resilience that you create for your customers and for enterprises. But a lot of it is about the resilience that you create for society. And I think you should not be forgetting that. Amazing, amazing work. That's that's more important than anything else you're doing, in my opinion. And uh, the revered brand of Wipro will be even more, uh, you know, trusted and relevant given the soul of your company. So really appreciate everything you're doing. You know, Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's incredible is like you've been through a lot of these transitions and disruptions in your career. I mean, it's some very, very blue chip companies that Vala was talking about. And, and I think it's important to think about, you know, some of the leadership lessons learned, right? Because for our audience, a lot of folks here, I mean, we got 40, 50,000 viewers of the show thinking about what, what leadership lessons I can learn from this, especially given the different types of industries you've been in, you know, from manufacturing to services to other types of geographies, you know, what's in What's a nugget to, to pull out from, from your leadership lesson kit? Well, Ray, I think first and foremost, it's all about the people. I think you know you need to make sure that your people are safe, they're secure, uh, they understand what's happening. You know, communication is is very, very important. So I, I think a lot of it is about managing people. Uh, the second part is, you know, I've been in different industries and through different crises, whether it is you know, the dot-com bust or the global financial crisis. But I think the one thing which I've learned the most is irrespective of where you are, if you have a positive outlook towards the future and you have the resiliency, you always come out stronger. So I think it's a lot about, uh, you know, the resiliency and the positive outlook for the future. And the last thing is you find amazing inspiration all around you and you know it's a little story of you know this this guy in Wipro uh, who actually went back to his hometown and realized that he could not actually support because the the wi-fi that he had available out there was actually fluctuating and so he actually gets on to uh, go to the nearest town where it's very difficult to go on to so he hops onto a milk van at 5 a.m Wow. goes through an elaborate round of two hours to reach the place uh, where he has Wi-Fi, where he has a secure way of working, works the 10 hours, and then goes back on the milk van for two more hours back to his place. So, you know, there is, there is innovation, there is inspiration all around us. We just have to look and we just have to feel. And if you're open to it, then I think we can get inspired. It doesn't have to be leaders, doesn't have to be big people. It's all around us. Awesome story.
Awesome story. This is amazing. We are here with Milan Rao, president at Wipro. Uh, more importantly, uh, one of the top companies in the world helping out, uh, not just in the COVID-19 situation, but with their clients uh, in this post-pandemic world. Uh, talk, you can catch him on Twitter at Milan, M-I-L-A-N-R-A-O underscore uh, for emphasis. And uh, hey, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your insights and leadership. Thank you so much, sir. You great, great, being, great being here. Thank you so much, Valen. Great. Thank you, Milan. Uh, an extraordinary president leading an extraordinary company and, uh, you know, uh, follow Wipro and, and all their work that they're doing. Speaking of extraordinary guests, uh, our next guest, Jim McLevy, is a senior entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, artist, and author of Innovation Stack, building an unbelievable business, one crazy idea at a time. This is what our show is all about, by the way. Uh, people putting a dent in the universe and do, with crazy ideas. Jim's founder of is also founder of Invisibility, a project to rewire the economics of online content. He's a co-founder of Square and serves as chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, Jim's iconic card reader design was inducted in the Museum of Modern Art. I think that's a first, right? We haven't had a guest that has a piece in a, in a museum. He's the deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And he's someone that you must follow on Twitter at 2000F, 2000F. Welcome, Jim, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. You know, I was digging through my house to find that thing that you'd shove into the top of the iPhone, <laughs> the square reader. Yes, ah, I was looking for this thing. I, I know I have it. And this was not promotion. This just was the only shirt that was clean this morning. <laughs> I'm giving myself haircuts. Me too. So so I'm actually going to teach my son how to cut my hair today. That's that's on my list of Memorial Day weekend things. But um, but hey, so you beat Amazon in this payments game, right? This was the most interesting story, right? I'm I'm writing a book. I'll talk more about that one of these days. But we're talking about duopolies, companies that are coming in as monopolies on day one, and a challenger comes in to take out a big big force in the market that can take out the entire value chain let's start there and then we'll get we'll get into the book as well well actually that's where the book started for me too because um as few people know amazon attacked square when we were four years old so we were still a startup and amazon copied our product undercut our price and was just going to kill us and when amazon does this to a startup the startup always dies dies yeah always except in one case and that was square so we survived. Um, a year later, Amazon basically gave up. And they were really cool when they gave up because they actually mailed one of these little suckers to all of their soon-to-be customers. <laughs> so the way they closed it down. But here, here's the thing, Ray. I couldn't explain it. Like the math against surviving Amazon is impossible to do. Yeah. And I was happy we won, but I couldn't explain what happened. So I started looking for an answer and it took me three years to figure out what had happened. But what happened was we had sort of accidentally done this thing, which I call an innovation stack, which throughout history has protected companies from massive attacks and also allowed those companies to completely dominate their industries. So I'm talking the biggest bank in the world, the biggest furniture store in the world, um, you know, the first airlines, like it's, it's this phenomenon that recurs and recurs throughout history. And, and I'd never seen it explained. So I was like, I got to research this. And when I saw my research, I was like, I got to write about this. So that's how I got the book. 
That's amazing. So you're talking about companies like IKEA, Southwest Airline, Bank of America, uh, these big companies. And, and the book is titled Innovation Stack. And in there you say copying is a, is a great place to start, but you won't help you achieve transformational change. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then what also inspired you to start Square? So um, the, the, the thing about copying that is, it, it, was, it, it, was, it was sort of amazing to me, is that everything in my world, almost without exception, is a copy of something else. All the people I know, like everything in this room is, is a copy of something, at least chair I'm sitting on. You know, I'm a copy of my parents. Um, copying is the most powerful force in the universe if you want to make something that works. Find something that works and duplicate it. And that works in almost every situation except one where you have a new problem, a problem that has not been solved before. Then you don't have anything to copy. And so I narrowed my search from all the wonderful things in the world down to just these problems that had never been solved before. And I studied companies and people who did nothing but try to do new things. Hmm. And it turns out the DNA of doing something new is totally different. And it was not something that we discussed. And the reason I think we don't discuss it is because we don't have a word in the English language for describing a business person who does something new. Now, a business person who starts a new business is called an entrepreneur. And but most of those businesses, if you think about them, are actually copies. So, for instance, uh, I can go out and start a coffee shop um, yeah, in, sure, sure. in town, and and I, we'd be called an entrepreneur. But a hundred years ago, when the word entrepreneur was first being used, that's not how they used it. They only used the word entrepreneur to apply to this special group of business people who were doing new things and things that probably wouldn't work. So, like, if you want to make money, you go into business. <laughs> but if you want to change the world, you probably need to be an entrepreneur and you're probably <laughs> fail. So wow. that's what we work. That's a, so so wow. Google was Google was the 21st search engine in 1998. Yep. But were they artists or were they entrepreneurs? A little bit of both? Um, very very much. I mean, Google, if you look at their innovation stack, which I've studied quite a bit, had very similar DNA to what Square did, to what Apple did, um, to these sort of transformational companies. Because if you look at Google, I just think, well, there's just a search engine. And and then you say, well, it's just a search engine. No, like I've had friends that have tried to build search engines. And actually one of my friends was stupid enough to try to compete with Google and build a company search engine. And literally it was such a stressful thing that it was a husband and wife team, both PhDs, and they both ended up in the hospital. They were so stressed oh out God. that they're oh having their ass kicked so hard by Google. <laughs> they both ended up like literally in an, you know, in an ICU. Unbelievable. I was talking to Burnt Wall about this, if you know him, and uh, he was talking about his time at you know working against AltaVista, InfoSeek, everybody in that business, Excite. And it was a very, very different time. And and one of the things you you talk about is like this entrepreneurship that's out there. Like, is it? You know, is it learned? Do we are we teaching this anymore? Is it is it hard to find? Because it's everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but it's not everyone is an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think right, I think everybody wants to be an entrepreneur in the sense that they want to have a successful business and be their own boss. And um, successful business people are revered and they're usually pretty rich. Uh, and they're um, there's some people that society respects. Um, Entrepreneurship in its classic sense is not that cool unless it works, or I should say until it works. And believe me, I mean, Square was not <laughs> it cool is at all. Painful. <laughs> it, it's, it's just brutal. And, you know, we were being called idiots by very qualified people for <laughs> two years. And, you know, we had nothing to argue with because 
literally, if you're build so building something that's never been built before, the math is different because you can't point to a success. Now, if I'm going to open up a coffee store, like I can look at other coffee stores. I can go to a convention where everybody, you know, knows how the coffee business works. If, if there's something I don't know, I can hire a consultant. But if I'm doing something that's never been done before and I run into a problem, then almost always my team and I have to figure out how that problem can be solved. And sometimes solving that problem creates another problem or maybe two other problems. And this is what happened at Square. And by the time you solve all these problems, you're, you end up with not just one or two things, but 20 or 30 uh, different things that differentiate your business so much from the rest of the market that you end up basically with this new market to yourself. And that's what an innovation stack does. Right, right. In your book, you talked about how you and Jack Dorsey, you sacrificed functionality in favor of beauty and simplicity. And that's what helps Square build trust and reach mass audience. Can you talk about how you, as engineer, you know, designing hardware, software, you fight that, that, that gravitational pull of trying to add more features and functions while, you know, in, 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 in the juxtaposition of keeping something simple and beautiful and intuitive so you can have the success that you have? Yeah, so I made a fundamentally dangerous decision as an engineer because I'm, I'm trained as an engineer and I'm the guy yeah. who basically made this little thing. Awesome. You know, awesome. The original one I made was even love more. It. I love there's it. a problem with that because this is a square reader and as you swipe a credit card through it, the credit card will rock. So unless you yep. swipe perfectly level, it screws up the read. And the way to solve this is you make this device an inch and a half longer and then it doesn't wobble. And I made a long device and I made a short device and I tested both of them. The long device worked much better. The short device started conversations. If I would read a credit card with a long device, people would go, oh, you read my credit card. If I read it with this thing, they would go, what the awesome. hell did you just do? What, what, awesome. give me that. What, what the Magic, magic. <laughs> and remember, this was, this was 10 years ago. Nobody had ever seen something this small, let alone something that read a credit card, let alone something that plugged into the headphone, headphone jack of your iPhone. So that's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> we made a conscious decision to, to produce and sell the, or actually give away the tiny version that didn't work as well, but it got people talking and it How got their attention. How and my God, I did my square real, first square real estate transaction. I remember it came in the clear case, came yeah. out, I stuck it in. I was Absolutely. super excited. And I, at that point, I had a realtor's license. I was like, this is cool, man. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> so. Unbelievable. It is so difficult to get somebody's attention in this world. I mean, Val, you, you, you talk about all the stuff we do for, uh, for attention. Uh, most of it gets ignored. Yeah. I had this thing that was somehow a conversation starter, and I was damned if I'm going to you know, sacrifice it just for 20% better read fidelity. Unbelievable. There's such genius in that. And whether it was accidental or obviously you tested it. So well, it, was, it was intentional. It was 100% intentional. Yeah. If you go to the Square office, the large prototype is up hanging on the wall. I've seen it. We never ship. Unbelievable. I've seen it. And we're here talking to Jim about the innovation stack. You can see the book. It's in the upper right hand corner. If you're watching on the screen, uh, you know. And and I think one of the fun things about this book is really talking about you know that whole process, right, of of disruption and when you disrupt, right. And and you talk about something that's really important is. Uh, when doing nothing is sometimes the best response. Can we start there as well? Like, what does that mean? 
So when Amazon attacked us, we looked at our response. The, so the first thing we did was we looked for another company that had beaten Amazon as a startup, and there were none. So we had nobody zero. <laughs> there was zero. So, so. so then actually, there might like, be one, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. So then the question is, well, what do we do? And the answer is, well, I guess we should change something. But we looked at all the stuff we were doing, including our price, which Amazon had undercut our price by 30%. But if we'd matched them, we would have lost money on every single transaction. And so we thought, well, that's insane. That'll just bleed us to death. Um, and all the other stuff that we were doing, we were doing for very good reasons. Now, it didn't appear that we were doing those for very good reasons to the outside world because the outside world didn't understand what our innovation stack was. But we were doing 14 things totally different from the market. And so you know, the way we signed up users, the way we handled customer support, like that was not an accident. And it all made sense and it was all consistent. So when Amazon attacked us, it was very, very difficult to not change anything that we were doing, but that's what we did. We basically did nothing. <laughs> and um, it was terrifying because you know, like, like if a disaster is coming, you wanna prepare, like you wanna do something. And um, like, I remember I'm in St. Louis right now when my city flooded in 1993, like I was out bagging sand. Wow. Um, and it didn't work, like, it didn't help anything. Sandbags, the river came right over, you know, but, but at least you felt like you were doing something. Right. We didn't even fill a bag of sand when Amazon attacked. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. So these are all like counterintuitive. You know, I'm a former CMO, so I would have had a response team put in place. I would have tried to figure out attack vectors and this and the other, and it would have most likely failed. Uh, so, so you're giving us examples where you had to lead and build a successful company with zero precedence. Uh, and all the stats against you because you're going, uh, you know, producing solution going against giants. And so can you give advice? It seems like or, or my question is, do you have to be an expert to be a successful entrepreneur? Because it no. sounds like you were doing stuff where you couldn't have had expertise. You were doing breakthrough innovation and new business models and new solutions. So how, how do you give advice to folks that are nervous about this pandemic? because they're worried about job security, they're worried about they don't have enough domain expertise, they can't be yeah. successful entrepreneurs. How do you go from a non-expert to building one of the most successful companies in the world? So, and this is fundamental and you just said it, but I'll repeat it and underline it. And that is, you can't be an expert in new. <laughs> if something has not been done before. <laughs> true. There it's is so obvious, difference. it's so obvious, but you're yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, look, that's the quote. <laughs> no, it's, it's really true. And, and this, this will hit you like a ton of bricks. Like the only time you can be an expert is if the situation has occurred many times before and we have determined best practices and standards. So I'm on the Fed right now and there is not a single expert in world economic shutdown. We don't have one. We will. Thank God. Believe me. In a couple of years, <laughs> yeah. we have a lot of But right now we got nothing. So don't disqualify yourself because you think you don't have the qualifications to solve an unsolved problem. I will tell you this. I you love, can you repeat that? That was, oh, wow, what a tweetable, I'm gonna, anyway, I'll rewind and. No, 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 I'll, <laughs> I'll say it again because look, this, this is why I wrote the book. This is why I wrote the book. So powerful, so powerful. So many, I, I wrote the book for a, for a certain person. I had her in mind the whole time I was writing. She's incredibly talented. She's incredibly hardworking. 
but she's one of these people who every time she comes up against a problem that she doesn't feel qualified to solve, she stops, she hesitates. Now, I agree there are certain times that that's an appropriate behavior. So if I want to go out and fly a plane today, I better go get certified. I got to have a medical, I got to get trained, I got to learn how to handle stalls and FAA regulations. Like I can be certified as a pilot right now. But Wilbur and Orville Wright could not have been qualified pilots because no. when they flew the first airplane, <laughs> there were no pilots in the world. So they had to do this thing where they weren't qualified to do it, but they still do it. So the reason I wrote this book is I see these people all the time who have the potential to do these great things, but then they disqualify themselves because their whole lives they've been taught, you got to have the credentials before you do the thing. I've done that. I've done that. Yeah. We all do. We all do. And I just wanted to shout, look, get off the sidelines. Understand the difference between a problem that you can copy the solution yep. or a problem where you need to innovate. Jim, I needed your book 10 years ago. <laughs> I would have been such a higher place right now. <laughs> Jesus, so did I. Like, I mean, I was so, I mean, like when I saw this stuff afterwards, you know, you, you, you go through it, you, all this chaos. When I saw it afterwards, it all started to make sense. Like, first of all, writing a book is torture. Like, I hate writing. It's I'm really slow. I didn't even want to write a book. Like, I, I told Ray this. Like, I wrote a comic book. This whole thing was a graphic novel. I have the comic book. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's a comic book. And I, if you want the comic book version, it's at jimmckelvey.com. You can get it for free. You can get chapter nine as a comic. But oh my God. awesome. Awesome. But I just felt like I had to say this because, like, this is the stuff that I wish somebody had told me. What a gift. What a gift. Absolutely. And, and, and the best compliment I've received on this book was from a guy who uh, reviewed one of the early copies and very successful guy. He's got a painting in his living room that's worth more than my entire house. Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and, and sitting under this particular painting, he told me that if he'd read the book 10 years ago, he wouldn't have quit his last company. Because they wow. were building an innovation wow. staff. And you get so much negative reinforcement. When you're doing something that hasn't been done before, absolutely, the world is against you. They'll tell you you're crazy. They'll tell you why it's not going to work. You're just going to have negativity on negativity. And all this stuff that's cool about being an entrepreneur, you can forget that. That goes out the window. If you're doing something truly new, you're in a different world. And this guy, he was mega successful. But he said, he said if I'd known that I was on that path, I would have kept going. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, he's doing okay. I mean, it's a nice painting behind yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but you're right. You're right. I mean, I, I know, I know, I know, absolutely. I know throughout my career, you know, if you're someone that, uh, first of all, struggles with imposter syndrome, so even when you have success, you question, how did you get there? Uh, you know, <laughs> every day. Uh, but had I read your book 10 years ago, I would have had my own show on CNBC and it would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We'll be watching him. No, this is great. Him, Kramer, <laughs> Denali, all, all the show. Hey, we got some great comments here. It's about solutions, not money. There was a question here that was kind of interesting. What do you make of the innovation hype we are living in? That is, every customer company says they're innovating. Every consultant says they want to catalyze innovation. Oh, like, oh, is that, that real innovation? That just makes me vomit a little bit in the back of my throat every time I hear it. Um, look, here's the thing. Innovation is super powerful, but it is also super difficult. And I say it flat out, I don't try to innovate. Innovate is a, it, it's a last resort for me, okay? 
if, if I can find an existing solution, I will always copy that solution or try to adapt some existing solution to the new problem. The only time I've seen innovation really work is when it is the last resort. And, and by the way, this is not just me because I, I'm just one guy. I'm just one data point and I could have gotten lucky and all my story could be irrelevant. You know, um, <laughs> you need multiple data points throughout history. As a matter of fact, when I was writing the book, I wasn't, so for, I wasn't supposed to write a book. I was just researching for my own, for my own knowledge. And, and when I got enough together that I thought, oh, wait a second, I might actually have something here. I realized that I could just be deluding myself because it's really easy to research history and just pick the examples that are the ones that support your idea. Like if you're willing to just like cherry pick history, you could be right about anything. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, in order to prevent this from happening, because most of the people I studied, these entrepreneurs had, had, had died. But Herb Kelleher, the legendary founder of Southwest Airlines. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I took all my research and I flew down to Dallas and Herb and I sat down for an afternoon. And I said, Mr. Kelleher, is this what happened? Does this fit what happened at Southwest? And he said, yes. He's like, this is it. He said, this is what we lived through. And then he pointed out a couple of things that I'd overlooked. And I was like, oh, okay, duh. You know? <laughs> and, and then he said, go write this. Okay. Wow. And I was so excited because this guy was a legend to me. Of course. I, I went out and I was so excited about writing that I decided not to write a book. I decided to write a graphic novel. So I spent a year doing a graphic novel of the whole thing. And I portrayed Kelleher as this like superhero because I mean, the man literally flies, right? So um, without a cape too. I know. <laughs> as we have learned from, from the Incredibles, don't wear the cape. Um, don't wear the cape. Kelleher. So, so I, I did all this. And then I, I said to Herb, you're going to love this. I'm doing it as a graphic novel. This was like a year after we met. And he hated the idea. Wow. He, he, he was so against, he, he, he was like, he thought it trivialized hmm. this really important thing. He, and he said, he said, you know, he was in his eighties. He said, you know, when I was a kid, comic books were not serious. And he, right, he, said, right. he said, he said, I'm not going to stop you from doing what you want to do, but just leave me out. Wow. And I couldn't leave her Keller her out. So I rewrote it as a text. Amazing. And that's wow. why it's that amazing. Yeah. We are story. here with Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square and author of the Innovation Stack. You can see the book above here, Sold Where Books Are Sold. So get it your copy as soon as you can. Follow him on Twitter at 2000F. And he's also on, I think it's uh, Federal Reserve 8, St. Louis, District yeah. 8, if I remember correctly. So this goes back to eighth grade uh, finance. But anyways, <laughs> so thank you so much for being on Jim, the show. Thank you for sharing your insights. Terrific. And this is amazing. We do have to catch up for a barbecue and toasted ravioli. So. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you're in St. Louis, toasted rav on me. Thank you, sir. All that right. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. What an unbelievable segment. Um, I mean, we've had 600 some odd guests on the show. None of them have a piece in the modern museum of art. So, so that's a first. Now, we do have a CMO whisperer who's our No, I don't like either of you. I'm not talking. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm so mad. I can't. You can't I can't my anger right now at the both of you. You have me following. Just just so we're clear. I'm not. Uh-uh. No, don't you do this at me. You have me following a guy who's feeding millions of people, literally feeding millions of people. And no, I'm wearing a Golden Girls t-shirt. He has a t-shirt. 
of his invention of the changed finance. I don't like either of you. I'm never, I'm, I'm out. So sorry. First of all, I had never met Jim until today. I had no idea what an extraordinary storyteller. Unreal. And he was, it was ridiculous. I know. He, first of all, you missed his calling. You should have his own show. But, but, I'm, I, but I'm not sorry because you are amazing. Uh, Liz Miller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on today's Chief Marketing Office's evolution of customer engagement and the rising requirement of new security postures that account for threats to brand trust. By the way, last time Liz was here, she co-hosted the last show of Disrupt TV in 2019 with Guy Kawasaki. And the show starts with Ray and her talking about Vala Vala. And at some point, guys like, who's this Vala? Vala? Who's this thing? <laughs> so as an evangelist for Salesforce, it was nice to see the original tech evangelist who brought the Mac to market question, who's Vala? Uh, I was like, bud, I'm asking for Vala. What are you, what are you thinking? Like what? <laughs> Prior to joining Constellation, Liz oversaw the entire content and partnership programs for Chief Marketing Officer Council, developing programs and agendas for CMOs around the globe. She's a skilled moderator, facilitator, keynote speaker, engaging C-suite executives in hundreds of industries, webcasts, roundtables, keynote presentations, and panels around the globe. Anybody who has witnessed you Host a panel knows this second to none. Uh, you must follow Liz on Twitter at L I Z K Miller, M I L L E R. Welcome back, CMO Whisperer. And Why, thank you. Thank you, thank you, sir. What's up, guys? What's been going on? I mean, I know that everyone's been out and about, like, really super busy running errands, and like, <laughs> nothing's really been going on. No one's been changing stuff. Milan hasn't been meeting millions of people, so whatever. Yeah. By the way, what a, what an inspirational story. Like, you know, honestly, when I talk about fighting imposter syndrome is when I have an executive on the show that says, yeah, we fed six million people. In the yeah. Last yeah. Like I shut we <laughs> we shut down our campus, but we just kept feeding millions of people. But <laughs> but, you know, the, the amazing part of that story is that it is so in line with who Vipro is as a brand. And it, it feeds kind of right into what got me thinking about all these things called brand security, right? Because people, I think, when they started thinking about brand security or when we talk about it, we talk about it like it's the brand police, like it's that little department that sits down in the corner and they're like, you used the wrong logo. That wasn't the right color, you know? And so we think about that as brand security. But if you think of it this way, if Vipro had closed their canteens, if they didn't take that earnest, humanity-based view of what this crisis was doing to people, that would have been against their brand, right? That would have been in violent opposition to what their brand actually stands for and the promises that they are making to their customers and to their customers' customers and to the marketplace as a whole, right? So if they had shut down, went out and was like, peace out everyone, good luck to how you're gonna make it through this pandemic, that would have actually been a broken promise, right, right to all of their right. customers. And that's at the core of brand security, right? Are, are you breaking your promises? And what does that actually mean? Do, if you're promising to be a voice for humanity right. out in the world, and suddenly you don't treat your people with right. any right. level of humanity, you know, all of a sudden it's a broken promise. And the reason is they don't drift from their core values and guiding principles is because they live the right. Core values and guiding principles. The Primji Foundation and Wipro are known around the world, not just India, around the world as the right. most philanthropic, most giving family uh, with billions of dollars to you bet. the foundation. So you're right. They 
to 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 live your to 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 maintain that trust you have to live your brand your thoughts your right. words and your actions have to be completely aligned my definition of authenticity what you believe what you exactly. say what you do are completely aligned you're right you're right and it's, i bet you i it's bet at the you corner it's the corner of it right and and, I bet you it wasn't even a hard decision for them I'm no it probably natural. wasn't it right. was probably just this natural thing of like, of course, we're going to keep our kitchens right. open. Right. But then also look at the other natural decisions they make. Of course, we're digital, right? We're helping our customers be digital. Of course, we're digital because being, you know, being, having that humanity, being that brand that keeps your kitchens open, that is being, it's not doing, it's who you are, right? Mm -hmm. If you're digital, it's who you are. You can't just do digital. You are digital, right? But it also goes back to how they look at security and how they look at creating this infrastructure for security where it's proactive. You know, we're living in an age right now of COVID where you've got cyber attacks that have increased by upwards of, depends on who you listen to, right? So um, if you listen to the FBI, it's about 400%. If you listen to the WHO, it's about 500% globally. So we're in a time where bad actors are taking advantage of today's environment. And it's everything from phishing scams to trying to figure out who left a back door open, right? This is a dangerous, dangerous time. What happens to your brand when your customer finds out that you left the back door open? That is a forever, forever broken down trust, right? And all of this has to be part of the conversation around brand security. You can't just talk about things like, I'm going to keep our promises so... Yeah, we're going to keep our canteens open. It's also got to be, we're going to keep our promises and make sure that every single piece of our infrastructure, every conversation about security goes back to this idea of, are we making sure that our brand is secure as well? Because it's not just about the loss of revenue that you hit if you get hit by a breach, right? It is about the permanent loss of trust and that permanent loss of security and that promise that was broken with your customer if you end up in the crosshairs of one of these bad actors. So it just, it's a new conversation. That permanent loss piece is huge, right? I mean, kind of like that picture when we saw, you know, airlines promising to do social distancing in the, you know, plane and they did. <laughs> like everyone's there. You're like, that's not a, that's not an empty seat. Uh, and it, but I, I, it's, it's not a, you know, when, when you talk about the permanent loss, I think that if anyone who's watching right now has ever been mistaken for someone who buys security, <laughs> Right. Like I, I at one point in my career, I had operations in my title, which meant that like every security vendor called me because they were like, you are an operations person. You must buy all this software. Um, and I'm like, N I really don't. But that got me thinking, why am I not involved in this conversation? Because if I'm target, I'm really used to or if I'm if I'm a CIO, I'm really used to the sales pitch about how much target lost in the breach. Right. Oh, they lost millions of dollars. But let's be really honest about that. That was recovered in one and a half quarters, two quarters in a robust economy. Mm -hmm. So if you're weighing the cost of security, right? And what you lose if there's a breach, it's one or two quarters. I can bounce back from that. It's 3% of revenue. Okay, I'm just gonna make compliance a checklist. I'm gonna do the bare minimum so I can get by because security is hard. And every CISO out there knows this. Every CIO knows this. Security is hard, right? And it's not just a firewall. It's not just this one thing we implemented. It is a series of processes and 
organizational change, culture change that you really have to think about and you need champions for. And I think that's the real opportunity here for CMOs, right? Because if we're out there really trying to secure our brand, if we're really out there trying to make sure that people believe that there is that authenticity behind the promise of you give me your customer data, I promise we're not going to do anything bad with it. What's the worst thing you can do with a customer's data? Put it in the hands of someone who doesn't care about them and is 100% going to do something bad with it, right? So all of a sudden you end up in this world where security is a brand issue. Now, what I'm not saying is for CMOs to own it, right? Like that is not the conversation here. The conversation here is for CMOs to be involved in it, to ask CISOs, what do I need to do? How can I help you? Where, what is our posture? What is our stance? And to start looking at all of these technologies as if they are one framework for brand security because they all touch. I mean, I think Vala, where you work, it's a perfect example actually of an organization that takes this really seriously right, that understands not only what the security posture needs to be, but then what the security posture needs to be for your customers, right? Because you believe everyone is part of the Ohana. So you got to think all the way through to that. And I think that's what everyone needs to start thinking of. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Trust is our number one core value. Many people don't know that we employ the world's top ethical hackers. uh, And we have ongoing competitions of testing our systems and our processes yeah. with the world's top um, experts in terms yeah. of finding holes. Um, no, but, but so I'm going to shift the conversation to CMO yeah. agenda and I'll keep the, you know, the, my company in, in the question in that, you know, I remember early March, Mark, our founder had an all hands meeting. We have all hands meeting every week, virtual all hands meeting. And we had about 50,000 people logged in because it was one of our first all hands meeting after we had announced North that's Travel. not a whole lot of people vala yeah, yeah, yeah. people cut yeah. do yeah. some hiring bud <laughs> and uh and mark gave permission to all of us he said that i'm i am giving you the the privilege and the right to be ambassadors for our company uh we want you to reach out to customers partners stakeholders communities share our plan write articles, have your podcast. And, and so I'm giving you as the founder CEO permission to earn your trusted advisor. Oh my and God, I'm as thinking, a marketer, I would have been in the background like, I was a CMO before I, I was a CMO of a $900 million company before Wait. I joined Salesforce. And I'm sitting there going, oh, what oh, are you doing? doing? Like you throw, just, someone throw a shoe at Mark. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. You I, I would have totally, been right there with you. But, but, um, the volume of interactions, Zoom meetings, blogs. Uh, I, I've written 50 ZDNet articles since March. Uh, so it inspired me to just create, become a content creating machine yeah. because my company founder gave me the license to do so. And, and, and I'm not alone. So this, this control uh, versus collaboration mindset, what Jim talked about, you know, yeah. we're, in a, we're in a situation where there, there are no experts. So you, you've got to take your old playbook and maybe just throw it away and really reinvent yourself as you go. Adopt that beginner's mindset. Yep. You're prejudiced, hungry, curious, interested. So what are the CMOs? And I know you talk to CMOs daily, multiple CMOs. What are they thinking of? Are they, are they, well, are they nervous? Are they fearful? Are they inspired? Yeah. Are they all of the above? And what's on their agenda? What, what's really driving it's their, their... All of it? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, it's it's yeah. funny. It's kind of... it's. There's two answers, right? Is... All of it is on their agenda, but when it really boils down to it, there's really just one worth word, and that's growth. 
And that's really top of mind for every CMO I talk to, right? Is that the CMO is the growth driver for the modern business today. And, you know, we have, we have, dropped that mantle of branding for branders sake, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of the CMO that was sitting there thinking, I've got to go control Mark's message and I'm going to go like review his yeah, PowerPoint 90 that. times. Yeah, yeah no, I was going to say. That CMO doesn't work at Salesforce, but you know. <laughs> but listen, there were, there were really smart people and Peter Drucker said there's only two functions in business, innovation, marketing. And Steve Jobs said the most powerful person in business is the storyteller. So we've had some iconic yeah. Management and business leaders that know the power of storytelling as a fuel to for the growth engine. But I think that people misunderstood what storytelling was, right? Yeah. And I think that what people, what, what a lot of people did and what I think a lot of people outside of marketing still misunderstand is we're not making up a story. A marketer's inherent job is to actually take the enunciation of what the customer is buying from us and correlate that to the products that we sell and the business yeah. that we are, right? Yeah. So it's really about like when, when people ask me like, what does a CMO do? And I'm like, it's, we're kind of master translators because we're translating the voice of our customer into what our company should be aspiring to, right? And when I say that we're taking what our customer buys, if you ever ask a customer what they bought from you, it's never the product you sold them. Right. It's always something Never. else. I bought time to value. I bought something that was easy. I bought something that my customers loved. Right. I bought I bought something that my customers wanted to use. So if you're a technology yeah, yeah. vendor out there, here's a message. Not one of your customers bought your platform. Like not <laughs> one of your customers bought your software. And I and I hate to be the the you know the bearer of bad news because I think that when we look at our messaging and you know people will look, you know, we talked about innovation stacks, but I always think of things in like messaging stacks, right? If we start to really take a hard look at what we do for our messaging, the vast majority of us, sorry guys, still go out and create that meatball chart of how we stack up to our competition, <laughs> right? You know the meatball chart, Vala, right? Know, it's the like, know. here's what my product does and here's how we're so much better than everybody else. And when we when we bring out like the competitive messaging yeah. matrix, right? Because we have to, yeah, we yeah. always have to call it a matrix. It sounds really cool, right? Like you bring out the competitive cool messaging <laughs> matrix and all it is is the meatball chart of how yeah. our products stack up against all the other products. Yeah. So here's my dare for every CMO out there, especially as we're trying to get from like post pandemic, how do I just stop the bleeding to yeah. I got to get to growth, right? Because that's the trajectory that we're on right now. And marketers are kind of farther ahead on it than other folks in the organization because we had to deal with the panic on day one. Well, here we are in week 10. We're now dealing with, oh, crap, I got to grow, right? So like, we're already yeah. there planning yeah. that. We're, we're kind of like fast fashion. We're like 10 <laughs> months ahead of everybody else, right? Yeah. So here's my dare for every marketer out there. And if you need help doing it, God knows we do it. But flip the script on your competitive messaging matrix and don't go out and actually look at how you message against their product. Go out and collectivize how all of your competition actually talks. Mm -hmm. See what everyone in the market is saying about themselves. Cause here's the hard truth. We're all going to learn. We all say the same things and we all sound the same. Yeah. But I got to tell, got, got tell you what the lesson I learned in the last segment, when Jim talked about, Putting the, putting the science, science into, into the, the art and the and art into, into the science. science. Mm -hmm. He A-B tested two different platforms. He took the inferior platform in terms of functionality because of the beauty and art. Yeah. 
but he did testing to realize it was a conversation starter. So I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when the CMO of Square was like, what the hell? You're going to yeah, take the, the yeah, that's not what product? We do. Yeah, we're a finance platform. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like it would have been like, we are a finance platform. You all be quiet. But look at what people buy, right? Yeah. Like look at what people buy. What people buy is the promise that you deliver through your branded messaging. And if everyone in the market sounds the same, if everyone is having the same conversation and FYI in marketing technology, it goes a little something like this. Um, we are a cloud-based quantum ready uh, block AI powered. enabled, AI powered, <laughs> data obsessed, customer focused For technology. The times in this new normal, yes, which gives you the, silver linings. All exactly, the time. exactly. <laughs> and then we throw in, future. <laughs> mm -hmm, and then all of a sudden we'll throw in something like a curveball. Like we'll be like, and we are, um, or like it, it could be anything. Oh. My favorite, the new one now, go find it on every solutions website, is we're fastest to value. Like it just, it's so everywhere. Yeah, like it's I, like, I feel like I'm playing a drinking game these days because I'm like fast to value, you know, it just everyone, the MarTech 9 billion or whatever that Clash Seven, Plans map is. 7,460. Here's one from they, Andrew Nebus. Cloud oh. native single pane of glass. There you go. <laughs> Boom, Andrew, right there. High five, buddy. Yeah, it just, it's like everyone sounds that ridiculous. And I know that we all want to sound that ridiculous because in the world of like functional, I got to get something out there and I got to get something out there to, to work in sales enablement. And I got to go out there and power the, you know, jam things into the funnel. Um, nothing clogs the funnel like the goo of sameness, right? There's just nothing that makes it worse. So like my, my dare for day, Nothing clogs the funnel right. like the goo of sameness. Yeah. All right, I'm going to have to cut you off. This is going to be hard. <laughs> We're here with Liz Miller, VP and Principal Alice Constellation's own, and of course, the CMO whispering follower at Liz K. Miller, not Mueller, Miller, yeah. for, for the other guy out there. And uh, hey, thanks for being on the show. Have an Absolutely. awesome weekend. And we'll Liz. see you back in the green room when we uh, exit out. He says Stay I have off. Monday off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What's the Monday? boss man. The boss man. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, Liz. So Thank thanks, you, Liz. guys. Thank you so much. Ray. Oh, my God. What? I mean, I, first of all, that hour felt like five minutes to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but Milan, Jim, Liz, like ridiculously smart, big brains. And uh, I have to somehow summarize this in a ZDNet article. <laughs> yeah. I might have to do three separate articles. It was too much, too much goodness to wrap it all in one. Your, your thoughts. By the way, before we go to your thoughts, next week, episode 192, we're getting close to 600 guests. I think we're at 579 right now. Howard Stephen Friedman, data scientist, health economist, and author of uh, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. So we're going to talk to you, Mr. Friedman. Uh, Jody Cow, Chief Product Officer at Steam Sets, and Jack Vaughn, Writer, Analyst, Researcher at Progressive Gage. So again, three more big brains. Uh, but your thoughts in terms of our, our, episode, our current episode 191. <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, look, this is what we started. This is what we always wanted to talk about, right? Talking about innovation, getting leaders, right? Getting their insights, understanding how the things that happen behind the scenes. You only get 20 minutes. I mean, it just blows by like per segment. You know, we're gonna have to get some. We got some special guests coming up, so we might have to do some special episodes. We, we won't. Oh, you don't want to say about yet. the June guests? I won't say yeah. who. Yeah, okay, uh, right. Maybe some, <laughs> you know, former world leaders. Uh, you know, fam famous authors as well. Uh, but but yeah, no. But the show is. I mean, 
you know, this has been wonderful. I mean, the ability for everyone here to share their knowledge, their insights with everybody, and you know, to our almost 40, 50,000 viewers a week, I think this is just incredible. I want all three guests to consider coming back. Honestly, 20 minutes wasn't enough. Um, uh, they were all terrific. And uh, just for me, it felt like two minute conversation. So listen, it's, if it's if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. Uh, re recommend guests. Yes, we have the godfather of the internet coming in June. Yes, we have one of the biggest management legends uh, sold over Vince 10 million Surf, books. Tom Peters, who else? <laughs> Former <laughs> prime minister of uh, Australia. But anyway, we, we will leave those names for, but these are all June guests. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a privilege for us. And uh, thank you for helping us stay teachable. Yeah. And uh, we look forward to Have uh, a next safe week. Memorial Day weekend, everyone. And uh, stay safe, social distance, barbecue well, enjoy some of the weather, take, take the load off, the longest eight weeks ever. Jim, if you're still in the green room, stay there. We'll come back and say hi. Thank you, everybody. So have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, everyone. Weekend. Thank you.